0: If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at weissmanfamilydental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, October 27, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we will be reading the following articles. Sing It Loud by Tony Tresca. An Option for Death Brings a Mindset for Life by Will Matsuka. Pain and Powder by Chad Robert Peterson. Southern Hostility by Jesse J. Gray. Good Trouble by Michael J. Casey. A Sweet Little Treat at the End of the Day by Colin Wren. Mixology International by Nick Hutchinson. Treating Tourette's by Will Brenza. Sing it loud. The world premiere of Jerry Hinshaw's musical memoir, Raised on Ronstadt, is a powerful evening of storytelling that needs to be seen and heard by Tony Tresca. Like her idol, Linda Ronstadt, the genre-hopping music legend who has sold more than 100 million albums worldwide, Jerry Hinshaw wants to share her story with you through song. The world premiere of Raised on Ronstadt, written and performed by Hinshaw and produced by Boulder's local theatre company, is a deeply moving original work about the memories that bring Hinshaw joy, and music's ability to connect people across cultures. Raised on Ronstadt is a uniquely American story. Hinshaw illustrates her family's American dream, along with her struggles as a Mexican-American who has lost some of her culture and language. Through a series of monologues and musical performances, Hinshaw draws audiences into her inner world through poignant vignettes about growing up between two cultures. She minds her specific experience as a Latina in the United States to speak to fundamental truths about identity that transcend cultural differences. Listening to Ronstadt's music allowed Hinshaw to feel more connected to her Mexican roots. Hinshaw explains that Ronstadt had to fight with her producers to record an album in Spanish because they were afraid it would alienate English-speaking audiences. Nevertheless, Ronstadt persisted and the result was her groundbreaking 1987 LP Canciones de mi Padre, which went double platinum and remains the best-selling non-English language album in U.S. history. Ronstadt's music taught Hinshaw that you shine your brightest when you're true to yourself. Production designer David J. Castellano does an excellent job of turning E-Town Hall into Hinshaw's family home. The room is decorated with records, family photos, and musical instruments. The lighting design by Sean Mallory is incredibly effective at blending concert style and theatrical lighting. His use of colored lighting to represent the American and Mexican flags is particularly striking. Director D. Covington and Hinshaw have worked together for 20 years, and their trust in each other is evident. Hinshaw seamlessly transitions from family jam sessions to church to her parents' divorce. Covington cleverly directs the band members to be active participants in the story. They not only play music, but portray people from Hinshaw's memories. Every song in Raised on Ronstadt is pulled from a story that Hinshaw tells the audience. The ensemble performs songs from Ronstadt's discography, and those of other artists who influenced Hinshaw's life. You'll be tapping your toes and fighting the urge to not sing along to hits like Somewhere Out There, Natural Woman, You're No Good, and more. To help audiences connect with the material and each other, local theatre company co-artistic director Betty Hart is hosting two post-show come-together events to further explore the work. Following the performance on October 29th, Hart will lead a 20-minute community discussion on the show's themes. The November 5th performance will be followed by a community meal where audience members can break bread and reflect on Hinshaw's journey together. The show is only scheduled to run through November 6th, but I sincerely hope this is not its last iteration. This is so much more than traditional jukebox musical. With its crucial message of embracing all parts of your identity, Raised on Ronstadt is a show that needs to be seen on stage and a story that deserves to be shared with as many people as possible. On Stage, Raised on Ronstadt by Jerry Hinshaw. Various times through November 6th, E-Town Hall, 1535 Spruce Street, Boulder. An option for death brings a mindset for life. The expanding practice of human composting innovates the funeral industry, climate change and death by Will Matsuka. Greg Fisher had a lot of hobbies, making inappropriate 3D printed figures, headbanging, watching the big Lebowski and crashing cars were just a few. Courtney Vick, Fisher's partner for eight years, describes him endearingly as always seeking to learn new things, try different foods, and overcome challenges. The first time Vick met Fisher, she says he was sporting a man bun, satchel, and plaid shirt, a typical outfit for the Pacific Northwest native. Greg was like a 14-year-old boy, she says. He was very funny. Fisher didn't take life too seriously only needing a moment's notice to crack another crowd-pleasing dad joke. On May 26th, 2022, Fisher died from a heart attack at 51 years old. Between tears and laughter, Vic speaks about her partner fondly. After his death, she knew exactly what he would have wanted, natural organic reduction. Natural organic reduction, N-O-R, is the slow decomposition of a human body into soil, human composting. The process marries the funeral industry with sustainable agricultural composting. Fisher's body was sent from Arizona, where he lived, and where NOR isn't legal, to the first company to produce NOR in the country, Washington-based Recompose. Katrina Spade, the founder and CEO of Recompose, developed the process herself, using techniques from the well-researched and tested process of composting farm animals with a more humane mindset. This is someone's loved one, and we have a lot of responsibility in the way we care for that body along the way, Spade says. So, similarly, our composting system has been designed very carefully. Vic says that Fisher had his own definition of NOR. Greg called this being rotisserie chickened, because you get spun and you're heated up, she says between laughs. Compost needs oxygen, typically introduced by turning over or rotating compost files, and creates heat as millions of microbes break down organic matter throughout the composting process. NOR is becoming increasingly accessible to folks across the country. Since Recompose first did it in 2019, NOR is being offered by more and more funeral homes in states where it is legal, including the Natural Funeral based in Lafayette. It's clear NOR is quickly changing the funeral landscape in our state and across the country, not only introducing an innovative option for people after death, but also bringing a new mindset throughout life. Keeping it natural. Since Washington legalized NOR in 2019, Colorado, Oregon, Vermont, and California have all followed suit. The natural funeral is the NOR pioneer in Colorado, laying the first person in a vessel just two weeks after Governor Polis signed the Human Remains Natural Reduction Soil Act into law on September 7th, 2021. The act includes a few rules businesses have to follow, including prohibiting the use of the soil to grow food for human consumption and commingling human remains with soil without consent. Since then, the natural funeral has expanded from eight to 32 vessels, perfecting their process along the way. They reach the same end point as Recompose, which will open a facility in northeast Denver in the spring of 2023, but have a slightly different process. It starts with the vessels, a three-foot-wide, three-foot-deep, and seven-foot-long wood container where the composting process occurs. Each is insulated and sealed airtight to closely control the interior environment. Along the way, the vessel is carefully layered with organic material, wood chips, straw, and alfalfa. The natural funeral also inoculates the vessel with four gallons of a cloudy bacteria rich tea to help speed the decomposition process. The staff monitors the vessel for its temperature, oxygen, nitrogen, and moisture content over the next four months. After seven to ten days, the vessel reaches one hundred and fifty degrees signaling the bacteria are doing their job and breaking down organic material. When the temperature goes back down, staff will roll the vessel to reintroduce oxygen into the system. They know the process is complete after three heat cycles, when the temperature no longer reaches 150 degrees, because there is no more organic material for the microbes to break down. Because bones take much longer to decompose, They break them down using the same equipment used for cremation, then put the bone powder back into the soil. At the end of the four-month period, the result is about 600 pounds of dark chocolatey brown pathogen-free soil that gets returned to the family. Seth Vidal, a co-owner and managing partner with the Natural Funeral, helped design the vessels and NOR process for the funeral home. He realizes how important it is to combine composting science with the dignity and ceremony that comes with more traditional funeral disposition types. We created a beautiful ritual and we want to honor this person, says Fidal. Part of that ritual is to create moments of participation both at the beginning and end of the process. During the laying in ceremony where the body is placed in the vessel, They encourage families to bring a shoebox size of organic material that the person connected to. Vidal says people have brought parts of trees, cannabis, hops, blueberries, and salmon to place with their loved ones in a moment of remembrance. After the composting process is complete, the laying out ceremony is the family's first opportunity to reunite with their loved one as regenerative living soil. The Natural Funeral's first laying-out ceremony was of a young man who died unexpectedly at 19 years old. Vidal describes the emotional experience for the parents, who, upon seeing the final product, shot their hands into this pile of soil almost to the elbows, as if they were embracing the body of their son. It's the tactile moments of physical participation that are really meaningful for families, Vidal says. From there, families are free to do what they will with their composted remains. Vidal says families have used it for things like at-home gardening projects and tree plantings. Innovating Death Spate says people are often surprised when she tells them about her career. It's really common for me to be at a dinner party and say what I do and have someone go, Oh, that sounds icky. She takes these opportunities to make death more approachable. I think when people get through that hurdle of, okay, I'm mortal, there will be a body left over when I leave this place, then you're looking at options in a more balanced way. One strategy she uses is to have her service team wear informal clothing that mimics a forest palette rather than dark-colored attire. N.O.R. also introduces a much more environmentally friendly disposition option than a conventional burial or cremation. It's the most ecological form of disposition that exists on the planet right now, says Vidal. In burials, people are typically embalmed with formaldehyde, which can break down and release toxins into surrounding soils. Placed in a bronze casket inside a reinforced steel vault in a cemetery, where lawns are consistently watered and mowed, under a granite or marble headstone. Cremation is increasingly popular, but uses vast amount of energy, and releases carbon. It takes two to three hours at 1800 degrees to cremate one corpse. Recompose claims their process requires one-eighth of the energy of conventional burial or cremation. The final product of human composting takes up less space. In heavily populated areas, cemeteries are simply running out of space and charging more and more for each plot. The National Funeral Directors Association found the national median cost of a funeral with viewing and burial was $7,848 in 2021 and $6,970 for viewing and cremation. NOR at the natural funeral costs about $8,000 and $7,000 at Recompose. Spade from Recompose says NOR uses fewer resources and creates a product that can help combat climate change. If we could make human composting the default, we would be creating soil and sequestering carbon with every single person's death, she says. That's one reason Fisher wanted to be composted. He was passionate about recycling, the environment, and reducing his carbon footprint. Vic says NOR was comforting to her because it would continue Fisher's interests. I can take something he was passionate about in day-to-day life and be able to do that with him in the end, she says. But Spade says she's been surprised at the breadth of people who want this option for themselves, not just environmentalists. We have 20-year-olds that have signed up for our pre-arrangement process, and we have 95-year-olds who have signed up for it, and everyone in between. Vidal says that the resistance he has seen to NOR has come from two camps, the conventional funeral industry and the Catholic Church. The Colorado Catholic Conference wrote in a statement that the church would not participate because, The reduction of human remains into soil is not consistent with our belief that our bodies are made in the image and likeness of God, and should not be used as compost or any similar desecration. Spade says, Recompose vessels are designed for gentle and pleasant experiences that honor the human body while composting it. The informal, back-to-earth nature of Recompose was the perfect fit for Greg Fisher. On October 11th, Courtney Vick traveled to pick Fisher's remains up from Recompose in Washington. The rich soil that came from his decomposition, weighing 460 pounds, waited in burlap bags and boxes for family and friends to take home. In Fisher's obituary, it says BYOB, bring your own bucket. Along with putting Fisher's nutrient-rich soil on some newly planted trees, Vic thought it would be fitting to keep some of Fisher's soil remains in a shimmering red Folgers can, just like Donnie's ashes in The Big Lebowski. The idea that his urn would be a movie reference, Vic says, is very Greg. Pain and Powder Colorado filmmaker and snowsport legend Chris Anthony tells the story of the 10th Mountain Division who used their front-range ski training to help win World War II by Chad Peterson After a grueling campaign that killed or wounded thousands of its members, the 10th Mountain Division of World War II marked Germany's surrender to the Allied forces in May 1945 the best way they knew how with a ski race. Using a cache of captured Third Reich ski gear, the contest was held on the slopes of Mount Mangart in the Julian Alps along the west border between Italy and modern-day Slovenia. For an experimental infantry unit trained as skiers in the Colorado Rockies, the snowy celebration was a fitting end to a devastating war. Nearly 80 years later, The Soldiers and Their Commemorative Race are the subject of a documentary by Colorado filmmaker and ski legend Chris Anthony. Currently on a screening tour stretching from Austria to Aspen, with a Denver stop scheduled for November 3rd, Mission Mount Mangart tells the untold stories of the 10th Mountain Division and their crucial efforts that marked a turning point in the war. Their assaults on Italy were just legendary," says Anthony, who was inducted into the Colorado Snowsports Hall of Fame in 2018. And even though they were one of the youngest mountain divisions, what they did during World War II is amazing. The path to the film began during one of Anthony's yearly ski trips to the Julian Alps. After recognizing the professional skier's name in a local newspaper article, Retired Slovenian Brigadier General, Janis Kavar, reached out to discuss the efforts of the 10th Mountain Division and his country's annual ski race taking place each year in their honor. He wanted to get this across to somebody that Slovenia celebrates the 10th Mountain Division because it's when America came and helped liberate them, Anthony says. I could see his passion and I felt obligated to do something with it. Much of this was news to Anthony, who lives about 40 miles from Camp Hale where the 10th Mountain Division was trained. After exploring the region with Kavar during his next visit, he returned to the U.S. to pitch the film idea to multiple studios. All of them declined. The party that showed the most interest in the story was the government of Slovenia. The Slovenians were so loyal to this story, and were so supportive of doing anything they could to share the story with me," Anthony says. They flew me around in helicopters. Basically, I had the whole country to get the story forward. This marked the beginning of a six-year journey that Anthony took in order to tell the story of the 10th Mountain Division. Anthony used the filmmaking knowledge he learned at Warren Miller Entertainment the production company of the eponymous American Ski and Snowboarding Filmmaker, to piece together the documentary. I used every bit of that knowledge to pull this off, Anthony says. The skier and filmmaker who grew up in Denver's Five Points neighborhood now screens the documentary at schools as part of his Chris Anthony Youth Initiative project. The story of the 10th Mountain Division helps Anthony stress the impact skiing had on him as a child growing up on the Front Range. I definitely ran into some trouble as a kid, as all kids do. And thankfully, my parents, who were struggling at the time, worked part-time jobs at ski areas, so that's how I got to ski, he says. That helped keep me out of trouble. But when it comes to the broader story of how skiing helped defeat the fascists in World War II, it's not just Anthony and his film audiences who are recognizing the efforts of the 10th Mountain Division. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden visited Colorado and designated the unit's Camp Hale training site as the first national landmark designated under his watch. It's long overdue, Anthony says. It's a massive part of our history. And a lot of what they did got buried in the closets. On screen, Mission Mount Mangart screening, Chris Anthony Youth Initiative Project fundraiser. 6.30 PM, Thursday, November 3rd, University of Denver, Newman Center for Performing Arts. 2344 East Iliff Avenue. Southern hostility. Kentucky Hardcore Heroes Knocked Loose, Break It Down at Red Rocks, by Jesse J. Gray. The first moments on the latest Knocked Loose EP feel something like the opening credit sequence of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Recalling the film's unsettling helicopter shot trailing Jack Torrance's VW Beetle across the treacherous twists of a Rocky Mountain Pass, Vocalist and songwriter Brian Garris takes a similar aerial view of an ill-fated vehicle skidding through a southern sun-stained valley. Floating around the bend where light divides the holler, and like the doomed Boulder family at the heart of Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece, the song soon explodes in an unforgettable fit of violence and grief. Such cinematic flair, married with a knack for reaching beyond typical genre tropes, lights up the rest of the brief, but bruising, 21-minute runtime of a tear in the fabric of life, signaling a high-water mark for the exceedingly heavy Kentucky Quintet these six ferocious studio cuts find the restless breakout act experimenting with dramatic flourishes and an expanded musical vocabulary that feels light years ahead of the band's more straight ahead 2016 debut laugh tracks. With every release, you try to challenge yourself and grow. We expanded where we draw influence from in order to challenge ourselves as musicians, Garris says. We also tour pretty heavily, and I think a lot of our influence comes from trial and error when it comes to live shows. That willingness to tinker with the possibilities of a style not always known for nuance has earned praise for Knocked Loose in unexpected outlets like NPR, suggesting the band's appeal transcends the insular world of metalcore. A scene driven blend of metal and hardcore punk that broke through in the early 2000s. The band was instrumental in reviving the subgenre for contemporary audiences, including a cultish devotion to its signature slow and groove forward breakdowns. But it's their propensity for playing with the formula that continues to set them apart. I really enjoy taking influence from outside of heavy music and I think that's really important. On A Tear in the Fabric of Life, I drew a lot of influence from country music, Garris says. There are easter eggs throughout the EP related to that genre, just because I wanted to create the environment in which the story takes place. I wanted it to feel like Kentucky. Such references include a nod to the Brenda Lee classic Sweet Nothings a karaoke standard for Garris' country music-loving grandmother whose lyrics get repurposed on the punishing track Contorted in the Frail. But it's not just sly cultural nudges that tie Noctalooze to the bluegrass state. The band's roots in the Louisville DIY scene have grown the quintet into the genre-scrambling metalcore mainstay listeners know today. Our scene is very diverse because it's too small to divide, You don't want to have just a punk show, or just a hardcore show, or just a metal show. There's not enough people, Garris says. So, you have a show that has punk and metal and hardcore. So you can get the biggest turnout possible. I think that really influenced how we handle touring to this day. We'll do a pop-punk tour, we'll do a rap tour, we'll do a metal tour. In addition to an omnivorous appetite for touring, cutting their teeth in Kentucky also gave the band a sense of urgency to establish themselves with audiences across the country. Nobody's gonna come there to see us, so we got to take it everywhere, Gareth says of those early days. So, as soon as we could afford it, we bought a $1,500 van from a church and have been on tour ever since. The near non-stop touring and restless ambition to connect with new listeners brings Knocked Loose to Red Rocks on October 31st, where the band will support New Orleans horrorcore, hip-hop duo, Suicide Boys, and a slate of other rappers and DJs. It's not the first place you might expect to encounter the band's measured brand of metalcore, but Garris sees their placement on such bills as an opportunity to push themselves as a live act. In the position we're in now, we're able to play all these stages in front of all these new crowds, he says. Learning how to communicate in these different spaces and how to interact with the audience and get them involved is a challenge I really enjoy. The sloping red rock formations and cavernous quality of the treasured front-range venue may be a far cry from the crowded basement and club shows where metal and hardcore bands typically thrive. But don't expect the hugeness of the open-air amphitheater or the gig's lack of heavy music fellow travelers to dull the ferocity of a traditional knocked loose show. In some ways, I feel like there are aspects that can be more intense sometimes, in my opinion, he says. If you can get that amount of people to respond to what you're doing, it's overwhelming in a really positive way. On the bill, Suicide Boys with Ski Mask, The Slump God, Knocked Loose, and DJ Scheme, 7.30 p.m. October 31st to November 1st, Red Rocks Amphitheater, 18300 West Alameda Parkway, Morrison. Good Trouble Strong performances anchor the Banshees of Inisherin, but it's the filmmaking that sings by Michael J. Casey. The year is 1923, and civil war wages on Irish soil. The country won independence from the British rule the year prior, but conditions of the truce have motivated brothers-in-arms to take up their rifles against one another and shed more blood. And off the coast of County Galway, another civil war wages on the island of Inishirin, this one between Patrick, Colin Farrell, and Colm, Brendan Gleeson. The two are old drinking buddies, and every afternoon, Patrick follows Inassurance Famine walls down to the sea, where he collects Colm for a pint at the pub. But one day Colm doesn't answer. He's sitting inside, smoking, but he makes no acknowledgement of Patrick's presence. Flummoxed, Patrick returns home to his sister, Siobhan, Carrie Condon, who wants to know if they've been rowing with each other. Patrick doesn't think so, but once the rest of the town wonders the same thing, Padraic starts to think they have been. Well, they haven't, but they are now. I won't reveal the reason for Colm's cold shoulder, but it is both incredibly petty and perfectly understandable. It's also not very nice, and Padraic might be the nicest man in Inisurin, a little dull, sure, but an all-around decent fellow. Not that that's stopping Colm. Inishrin is a small island with a smaller population, and turning your back on one is easier said than done. You know the phrase, cut off one's nose to spite one's face? It's a lot like that. Written and directed by Irish playwright and filmmaker Martin McDonagh. The Banshees of Inishirin is his first feature set on home turf and is first to feel like a play brought to the screen. Sometimes that phrase is used to slight a film but not here. The Banshees of Inishirin features the types of modest conflicts and spectacular writing that don't always make it to the silver screen. Cinema is a bombastic medium and McDonagh's previous works in Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, contain volume fitting of a 40-foot screen. All three are good, but Banshee's is better. It's quieter, more thoughtful, and beautifully rendered. The speaking roles are limited to about 10 players, four or so locations, and a conflict encompassing everyone without overreaching. The cinematography from Ben Davis is stunning, a shot of Colm sitting in his home, smoking and not talking to Padrake, features sunshine filtering through the window in an image befitting a Vermeer. And Carter Burwell's score, laced simply and touchingly throughout, brings an old-world romance with a touch of melancholy. Banshees is a mature work, one where McDonagh realizes that a microcosm can say more than an entire war. And that the movie carries as many laughs as it does, not to mention the sheer pleasure of keenly written dialogue, only makes a gorgeous experience all the more enjoyable. In real life, Ireland's troubles were just beginning, but McDonagh finds a way to bring peace. Francois Truffaut was right. Cinema is an improvement on life. For more movie reviews, tune into to After Image, Fridays at 3 p.m. on KGNU, 88.5 FM, and online at kgnu.org. A Sweet Little Treat at the End of the Day Suti & Company Blends Memory with Nordic Sweets for a Whimsical Experience by Colin Wren Andrea Uzarowski spent more than two decades dreaming of opening a bakery. But first, she had to work at Noma, the beloved Copenhagen eatery. She also had to do some time as an investment banker in New York, and move to the States from her native Denmark on more than one occasion, and deal with more than her fair share of sexist hazing as she honed her craft and rose the ranks in kitchens across Europe and the US. Just over a month ago, Uzerowski opened Suti & Company in a marvelous former house just off 16th and Pearl Street. Spread over two intimate hangout rooms, a serving counter and an inviting patio, the bakery and coffee shop serves a range of pastries alongside shelves of hand-selected home goods. The Suti, which Uzerowski describes as a little sweet treat at the end of the day, are plentiful here. Six staples, all named after significant people in Usarowski's life, are joined by a rotating cast of delectables suited both to season and whimsy. Classic coffee drinks, with beans from boxcar coffee roasters, are joined by a matcha latte, a pistachio latte, and a must-try honey latte. I have said for the longest time that I would open a bakery dedicated to my grandmother, says Usarowski, Well before her career in some of the globe's more forward-thinking kitchens, Uzorowski grew up cooking and baking with her grandmother, Magdalena. Many of her current recipes come straight from the food-stained pages of a hand-embroidered binder, with recipes that were written by both Magdalena and Uzorowski's great-grandmother, Catherine. I remember when some of the spots on the page happened, Uzorowski says noting that she recently came across a page marked with teardrops she recalls dripping onto the surface. Many of the recipes are generations in the making, with early recipes from Catherine marked by Magdalena's notes and alterations. Uzarowski's recipes are highly guarded. I will not give you my recipe unless you promise not to deviate. Guess how many recipes I've given away. Zero, she grins noting that she will sometimes write out new ideas in Danish just to keep potential copycats off the scent. It's clear that everything about Suti and Company from the hand-painted flowers Usarowski applied to the front entryway down to the cookie names is highly personal. The Magdalena, a shortbread with fig jam and walnut topping, is of course a tribute to Usarowski's grandma, with the Lily a chocolate shortbread filled with chocolate ganache, and then dipped in chocolate, named after her daughter. I grew up with food that let me know what we eat now is not what we should be eating, Uzerowski says, of growing up in Copenhagen. We grew everything, harvested everything, pickled everything, preserved everything. Everything at Sudi and Company is made with Danish butter and locally-milled flour. The chef's first visit to the United States came in the form of a student exchange in Detroit during her senior year of high school. I vowed I would never come back, she says with a laugh. Though she would return years later to kickstart her career as an investment banker. I learned to run with the wolves. The work was soul-cleaving, so Uzarowski found an escape in her love of cooking. I'm a chef by heart and by trade, she beams. Still in the Big Apple, she began working in kitchens, experiencing the kind of unsavory initiations she hopes to be more symptomatic of the era than they are now. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a woman's place is not in the kitchen, she says. Even as chefs loaded her with the most mundane unpleasantries they could muster, Uzarowski remained undaunted. The mistake people make is they underestimate me." After returning to Copenhagen, Uzarowski began what would become a two-year stint at Noma, the three Michelin star restaurant run by internationally acclaimed chef Rene Redzepi. Opened in 2003, Noma made a global splash for its new Nordic cuisine that pushed the boundaries of gastronomic heights. Uzarowski says she and Redzepi bonded over the experience of being an immigrant working in kitchens. He coming from Macedonia and she just returning from her somewhat harrowing experience in New York. It was a completely fair and level playground. It was okay to be creative. It was okay to come up with ideas that didn't come to fruition, says Usarowski, noting that Noma was integral to the development of a creative approach that has defined her career ever since. I like to play with my food. Up next was yet another of Europe's most lauded kitchens, Hisa Franco in Slovenia. Usarowski spent roughly 18 months working as sous chef under Anna Rose who was named the best female chef by the world's 50 Best Restaurants Academy in 2017. He's a Franco has since been awarded two Michelin stars after the guide started presenting the country in 2020. Since returning stateside, Uzarowski has worked as the executive chef in an athletic club in Iowa City, taught at Johnson and Wales in Denver, overseen the catering department at the University of Colorado, and acted as the executive chef for A Spice of Life Catering in Boulder. She currently runs her own catering company, the acutely client-driven Fresh Food Further, which boasts patrons like Bronco's quarterback Russell Wilson and actor Tom Cruise. While Suti & Company now only operates as a daytime cafe, Uzorowski plans to introduce a dinner series before the end of the year. With all the good vibes, I want to share it in the evenings," she says. This holiday season, Uzerowski will be selling ornate cookie boxes, complete with a selection of treats that are and will remain unavailable outside of what is set to be an annual tradition. This year's box will feature cover art by Scandinavian artist Annie Bailey, and will be filled with morsels dedicated to six different women who have been important to Uzerowski's life, and particularly the development of Sudie & Company. These are not the cookies you should give to your children, she laughs, noting each one's particular intricacies. Boxes will be available for pickup between November 20th and December 20th. Considering Uzarowski's high-profile career, Sudie & Company feels like a quiet triumph and a victory lap that the whole town can enjoy. Mixology International, by Nick Hutchinson. When contemplating the appealing aspect of drinking in Europe, ordering a bottle of wine with lunch, or sipping an afternoon beer at a cafe without shame come to mind. Certainly the freedom to enjoy an alcoholic beverage when voyaging abroad, the drinking age in Europe is 18, though it's not generally enforced, has put a smile on the face of many a young American traveler. Yet, a quick online search reveals that several European countries, including England, France, Belgium, Sweden, and Denmark, among others, while generally more relaxed in their approach to imbibing, experience some of the same issues with binge drinking and alcohol abuse that we do on this side of the pond. Given that no culture appears to be perfect when it comes to approaching the hooch, what's the major difference between here and there when enjoying a glass? The answer isn't clearly defined, but thanks to the internet and relatively affordable travel options, we're all more connected than ever before. And, like a pour of good liquor, boozy fashions and practices are thankfully very free to flow. As a result, Europe and other countries now dabble in making American-style IPAs, to varying degrees of success in terms of taste, while Americans widely enjoy tipples such as the Negroni and its many variations, including the Boulevardier, which uses whiskey in place of gin, the Mezcal Negroni, or the Negroni Spagliato, a prosecco-laced spin on the classic cocktail, and the ubiquitous Aperol Spritz, which features the bitter Italian aperitif. Happily, spirits are seeping through the borders and influencing enthusiasts everywhere. Knowing one's stuff when it comes to international imbibing has become something of a mark of distinction in the burgeoning cocktail culture, which got an unforeseen lift during the pandemic when people started experimenting with new drinks at home. Fun cocktail fact, mixology lore has it that the Negroni came into being in a Florence bar when its namesake, Count Camillo Negroni, who had developed a taste for harder booze while working as a rodeo clown in the American West, asked for a stronger version of the alcoholically lighter Americano, which does not include gin. With the advent of food halls and craft drinking establishments, such as local favorites Rosetta Hall, 1109 Walnut Street, or Avanti Food and Beverage, 1401 Pearl Street in Boulder, Some of the charms from Europe and beyond have made their way to the United States. We've begun to consider what we consume and drink and how we do it. Many Americans seem to be coming around to the good life associated with thoughtful quaff and nosh. It's now normal to enjoy a glass of natural wine, a chartreuse spritz, or a hard cider with a wood-fired pizza, a street taco or a healthy salad, while craft cocktailing has become something of an art and a social pastime. A visit to the Bitter Bar, 835 Walnut Street in Boulder, reveals a few European-inspired cocktails. From the Italian Job, a refreshing blend of Amalfi blood orange gin and fresh lemon juice, to the Boulder, version 2.0, an earthy swirl of bourbon, rhubarb aperitivo, and Italian vermouth. Sipping one of the thoughtfully concocted creations in the bar's comfortable and relaxed setting, indoor or out, allows for the kind of mixological nuance that might mark a drinking experience in one of the old countries. Owner James Lee also brings in alcohol from Japan, with the sake-based Demon Slayer and Ireland in the Irish Old Fashioned, which mixes Irish whiskey, sugar, and bitters. At nearby Brasserie Ten Ten, Ten Eleven Walnut Street, in addition to a good wine selection and its Coravin higher-end wines by the glass options, popular French-themed cocktails, which were developed to pair with food, include the Violet Sparkler, a light mélange of citron vodka, lemongrass syrup, and crème de violet; the Strawberry Basilic, a refreshing blend of strawberry basil cordial vodka, aloe liqueur, and St. Germain, or the Reve de Framboise with gin, chamomile syrup, fresh raspberries, and absinthe. All of these can be enjoyed while dining al fresco on the front patio or inside the restaurant in a setting that evokes the cafes and brasseries of the City of Light. Be it on the cobblestone streets of Croatia, Italy, France, or on the bricks of the Pearl Street Mall, we can thankfully savor the tastes of good drink and food and celebrate whatever culture we please. The river of booze flows both ways. Treating Tourette's, A Suffering Teen Finds Relief in Cannabis, by Will Brenza. Boston was 10 years old when he started to exhibit symptoms of Tourette's syndrome. At first, he says he only had little tics. He'd impulsively clear his throat or make clicking sounds. But it wasn't severe and it wasn't distracting him or others. Then, around 14, when he was about to go into high school, the symptoms got worse, a lot worse. He started having vocal and motor tics nonstop. From the moment he woke up to the moment he went to sleep at night, He twitches, jumps, he might flail his arms. He can torque his head. And this can all be happening at one time, his mother, Jill, describes. He also experiences the audible tick, which is an urge to make noise. That uncontrollable, irrepressible urge makes him bark or woof like a dog when he has what Boston and Jill call attacks. It was a dramatic change in Boston's life. Jill says he lost almost 20 pounds in just a couple months during this time. He tried acupuncture, which he liked, but says didn't really help with his symptoms. He tried CBD, which offered marginal alleviation. Then, he was out with his friends doing what teenagers do, and someone busted out some weed. Boston had never tried smoking before, so he gave it a shot. Almost instantly he felt relief. He quieted out, he says. The vocal tics were all but eradicated and his motor tics subdued. At first, I was a little freaked out by it, Boston says. At first, I thought I'd be getting in trouble, you know, because it's cannabis. But when he told his parents what had happened and what he'd felt, he wasn't in trouble. In fact, his parents felt relief of their own. Once they realized that it helped me, we committed to it, Boston says. It was an easy and natural course of action from Boston's perspective. Here's this flower, and when he smokes it, the urges he's constantly battling that are so often controlling him subside. It's a natural, non-addictive substance that, lucky for him, is legal in the state he resides in. Cannabis seemed like an ideal treatment option. However, for his parents, and his mother in particular, it wasn't such an easy thing to grapple with. We grew up hearing, well, you know, if you're going to use it every day, you're going to be a pothead and a burnout. You're not going to be productive in your life, Jill says. I had those stories playing in my mind because it's what I was told. She doesn't shy away from it. The rhetoric and propaganda of the drug war had gotten to her over the years. It had been ingrained in her, and to suddenly have to accept that this supposedly dangerous Schedule 1 narcotic was actually helping her son, and that he might become a regular daily user, was hard. I had to accept that the stigmas around cannabis that were brought up with my generation are not true, she says. That you can still be productive, and you can function productively. It took some getting used to, she says. But seeing their results, and knowing how much it was helping Boston, there was no way she was going to deny this treatment option to him. And besides, Boston's grades weren't suffering, and his creativity was as keen as ever. They got Boston a medical card not long afterwards. Today, they say they use a variety of different products from tinctures to edibles, vape pens and oil and flour, because, as Boston explains, mixing up the form of consumption helps maintain the medicine's effectiveness. Though, he adds, smoking flour helps the most. Thanks to HB 1095, passed in May 2018 in Colorado, students like Boston can legally use cannabis to self-medicate during school hours, when they often need it most, Understandably, his tics can be extremely distracting to his learning and that of other students. So, when Boston feels an attack coming on, he excuses himself, leaves campus, and uses a vape pen to control his symptoms directly. Unlike other things, you can't just medicate in the morning, at noon, and at night, Jill says. With Tourette's, you have to medicate when it's coming. Boston is a year and a half away from being able to walk into a dispensary and purchase his own medication. For now, his parents do it for him. But across the country, there are many other young adults, just like Boston, who don't have access to this treatment option at all. Because of the federal prohibition and Schedule 1 status of cannabis, a lot of people suffering from Tourette syndrome will continue to suffer without relief. And even in states where cannabis is legal, some parents might be too nervous and hesitant to try it with their own children. Even if it may help them, and even if a doctor recommends it for them. Look at marijuana as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, Jill says. I would say try to let go of your judgments and your conditioning. I'm trusting my intuition, and I'm still trying to serve Boston the best I can, and in a way that he's comfortable with even if it makes me a little uncomfortable at times. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.